Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Open Floor. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line, Ben Galver. What's up, man? Not too much, Andrew. I got to say, Monday night's NCAA title game was a much-needed twist in my life for two reasons. First of all, uh, you know, obviously Michigan got worked pretty good by Villanova. I mean, they were outclassed. I mean, clearly they were not the better team, and it showed pretty quickly. So there was two important reminders for me. Number one, it really didn't hurt that much, if I'm being honest. I jumped on the bandwagon pretty hard during the NCAA tournament for Michigan basketball, but I'll tell you what, any random loss to Iowa or Michigan State or Ohio State is a lot more painful than that game was during the football season. But the more important reason why it was an important kind of twist for me is because uh, I was getting dangerously close to feeling myself completely, Andrew, because I had been (laughs) on a tear with my predictions, you know, getting the lottery right last year, getting North Carolina last year for the NCAA title. And if Michigan had fulfilled my bracket prediction and beaten Villanova in the championship game, I think I would have been sort of like uh, that superhero. And, you know, I don't watch a lot of fantasy movies or superhero movies because I'm a reality-based person, but there's always that moment in, in the movie where they discover like the true nature of their power. And I was firmly convinced as Wagner was just going absolutely nuts during the final four game that somehow I was like channeling my superpower through his body. (laughs) And it, it looked in the first half of the title game, like that might happen again. And I was, I was getting really, really close to being just completely 100% insufferable. And I think the fact that now I have to confront my own mortality here. I am not capable of making these basketball events happen like maybe I had expected or or hoped. I think that's better for me. I think it's better for you for sure because, man, I would take all of that high horse out on you, and it's definitely better for our listeners too. No one wants to hear someone who is always right. I should be clear here. As someone who is your friend and as someone who is also contractually obligated to talk to you for two and a half hours every week, I was quietly dreading the prospect of Michigan beating Villanova, as you predicted three weeks ago, and and the high horse that you would be riding in on today for the podcast. So I'm happy. Thank you, Dante DiVincenzo, and uh, everyone else associated with Villanova. Thank you, Jay Wright. And now... In case you're in case you're down after that title game, we have an episode that you have been looking forward to all year long. It's time to talk about James Harden and the MVP race this year. No question. And it's nice to have a smooth transition like you just so expertly <laughs> did from a scenario where, you know, last year's MVPs, uh, MVP uh, race, I was so clearly right, you know, and well, then this one I get wrong in the NCAA <laughs> title game. And now we're coming back to a situation where I have a feeling the way you're setting this up, you might be ready to come over to the dark side and select James Harden. Am I, am I getting the right vibe there? A little bit, a little bit. This episode will certainly not be as contentious as last year's awards episode was. Uh, people can go back in the archives and find it as I surprised you with my Westbrook vote. But let's start with Owen because he asked. Horrified me is really the, the <laughs> verb. Horrified. Yeah. To be clear, Ben is still not forgiven me for my Westbrook vote. But Owen asks, what are your thoughts on the definition of the MVP award? It seems like everyone has their own idea of what the award is for, and the NBA hasn't really defined it at all. But should they? And I think that's a great place to start with this because my answer is like a vehement no. This is one thing I feel pretty strongly about. And we go through it every year where people start lobbying for like 
having two awards, one for the best player, one for like the most outstanding season. But to me, I think half of what makes the MVP conversation interesting every year is the debate about what we should value most. And it just sort of, it creates an interesting version of basketball history. Like it's cool to look back. I know it's blasphemous to you, but it will be cool to look back and and look at last season and see that Westbrook was so ridiculous that people just kind of like got swept up in the moment and voted for him, which is an accurate reflection of how outrageous that season was. And it's to me, I put that in the same category as Iverson's MVP and where everyone was just caught up in how magnetic he was and ignored that he obviously wasn't the best player. And so I just think year to year, the ambiguity and room for interpretation is what makes all this stuff more fun than it would be if we were just going for like, who's had the best statistical season? He's the most outstanding player. And who's the best player? Like that would, that would be LeBron for the last 10 years. I think this is more fun. Well, look, two points of clarification. First of all, we only have to tape twice a week. If we had a daily podcast, I guarantee you we'd be coming up with our own awards like most outstanding player That's in true. best That's season. Because you got to fill a lot of hours in March. And no disrespect <laughs> to anyone else who's putting those kinds of ideas out there, but that is a sure sign that you know, you've know you got too much time to kill. Maybe it's a sign the NBA season is too long. I don't necessarily think that. Uh, but it is a sign that when half the teams are out there tanking, let's get crazy with some goofball ideas to fill time. That's point right. number one. Point number two, Andrew, I really need you to focus on this year's MVP conversation when we're answering these questions. <laughs> I was just trying to go- shoehorn some arguments in there. I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> but, but look, you're going back and trying to explain and apologize and compare your Westbrook pick. And I mean, look, we do not want to go down that route again. I think you need to let uh, sleeping dogs lie. In terms of how I define the MVP, though, I'll tell you one thing that I really try to avoid. Yeah. I don't want to confuse value with valiance, right? Like there's been some most valiant player uh, nominees over the years. I would actually put Westbrook in that category from last year. I would put LeBron in that category this year. Uh, I might even put Anthony Davis in that category uh, this year. I mean, the idea is you're by far the best player on your team. If your team didn't have you, they would be, you know, deep in the lottery or, you know, horrible, just like not even worth talking about. Another good example of this, by the way, is like Kevin Love back in the Minnesota years where he's like mm-hmm. putting up 2020s and like he's getting that buzz for the MVP conversation. To me, uh, that is a, mis- a mistake because it often overlooks, you know, the the team impact side, the winning side. And so I do factor in winning quite a bit. I look at individual stats. I look at impact numbers. I look at advanced stats. I look at role, uh, team context. But I really do put a lot of emphasis on teams that are historically great from a winning perspective. That's why I voted for Curry for both of his years. Uh, That's one reason why I had Harden over Westbrook last year. And that's one reason I think that Harden, to me, is kind of the slam dunk this year. You know, if they get to 65 wins, not only is that a franchise record for the Rockets, that's above any reasonable expectations for this season by a lot. And it's also pretty rare historical territory. There's not that many franchises that can get up that high. Uh, and right. we've been spoiled recently by Golden State 73 or even San Antonio 67 a couple of years ago. I mean, that is a ridiculous accomplishment. And so to me, if two guys are very similar, but one is in that you know crazy rare category of 65 plus wins, it's a no brainer. There's not much of a conversation. And that's why I'm here with Harden in a slam dunk vote over LeBron. 
Yeah, and I agree with most of what you said. For me, if I had to boil it down, and again, I think it's it's cool and it's a good thing that the criteria can change from year to year, but if I had to boil it down into a sentence, it would be the player who, who comes to define the season more than any of his peers, and uh, the player who, when you're talking about basketball in a given year, he's the first guy you mentioned, and for me that has been hardened uh even though i'm not like a huge fan i think everybody has been blown away by what he's accomplished here and so there's not really a whole lot of debate in terms of whether he should win so let's talk about it from a couple different angles here because we got some good questions about it um we'll start with brian who asks i'm or who says I'm I'm not sure why I'm still a regular listener to Open Floor because I'm pretty sure Andrew is cyberbullying me. I am from the very very tip of West <laughs> Ireland, and yes, we have 4G and broadband internet here. I'm also a huge Rockets fan, having lived in Houston for four years, and I am a massive Lord of the Rings fan, having read the book multiple times. But here I oh am, my God. still streaming and still listening every week. So here's my question for you guys. Is James Harden getting pushed to number one in the top 100 next year? So first of all, apologies to Brian. <laughs> I don't want to cyber bully anyone, and I, I regret uh, the implication, but it's a really good question. So what do you think of this Harden season, and how does it change the way we talk about his value across the league? Well, I think, uh, first of all, the top 100 is not going to be decided until after the playoffs. That's very important information yeah. than when you're making these uh, kinds of ratings, right? So if, if Brian wants to craft a scenario where Harden winds up being the number one player on the top 100 next year, that would probably involve like Houston going four, 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 four through the playoffs, Harden averaging like 35 at 18 or something, you know, just some preposterous numbers uh, where it becomes clear, like in any context with any squad, he's the guy you would want to have as, as uh, the number one pick. And that's very unlikely. So let's separate the MVP conversation, which to me, it's a one-year award. The only thing we're really factoring in is that 82-game regular season performance and the team uh, impact on that uh, versus the top 100, which is a vacuum exercise, right? So that also takes into account age. Uh, you know, are guys going to be in their prime? Are they going to be regressing? And it's also a forward-looking exercise, the top 100 is. Right. So I don't I don't really see, you know, spitballing. I don't want to bias the process. I don't see any situation where Harden's <laughs> going to be number one on next year's top 100. I mean, I think there is a very difficult top three to crack between LeBron, Steph, and KD. None of those guys has had such a bad season uh, yeah. where they're going to be sli- slipping meaningfully. And I guess it, the the one asterisk would be if Curry just can't get right during the playoffs and these, these injuries look like they're going to kind of be a shadow over his near-term future, that mm-hmm. might drop him a little bit. But past that, I don't really see it. Yeah. Well, first of all, I really appreciate that you're worried about biasing the process and you're here to protect the sanctity of the top 100 debates with Rob this summer. Um, so... Congrats on the dedication. You never fail to impress me. Uh, but I, I think... Take your condescension and shove it, Andrew. Come on. <laughs> um, I, I think it's a, it's a good question because I'm of two minds here. Uh, as listeners probably know at this point, I'm naturally skeptical of Harden. I think he's very good, but I also think that the system in Houston makes him look a little bit more dominant and valuable than he actually is. And I... Th- and, you know, a couple months ago, I said there's a good chance we'll look at look back at this MVP as sort of a formality in a year where we 
like celebrated Harden, but no one actually thought he was the best player in the league. And like the Rockets might be the best team, but that doesn't necessarily put Harden on the same level as LeBron, KD, or Steph. And so that's where I've been for most of the season. But then on the other hand, especially over the last month or two, the longer this Rockets dominance has gone on, and granted, like the Rockets are beginning to come back to earth. Harden's not hitting as many threes as he had been. But I'd like the longer this season has gone on, I've become open to the possibility that Harden is still underrated, and we should have been mentioning him in that LeBron, Steph, best player alive category all along because he's been putting up these numbers basically for for four years straight. And then there was one there was one year where like everything went sideways with Dwight Howard, but I mean he's been on this elite level for the better part of a decade now. Yeah, you're setting this question up because you're trying to get me to nitpick Harden. I see what you're doing, but here's what I would say. <laughs> the the issue that you're hinting at that we talk about, it's the transferability, right? It's like how many different situations would a player be able to thrive and be able to really, you know, contribute to a winning team. Yeah. And Harden, to me, basically has the perfect setup in terms of coach, front office, uh, teammates, roster. He is very, very close to me to maxing out his value well, uh, to and, an organization. Let me be clear, though. I think Harden is super transferable and would be great in on a lot of different teams. I just think that, like you said, the Rockets situation makes him look even more unstoppable than he would be elsewhere. But wouldn't you say that guys like LeBron and also KD, because of his versatility, both offensively and defensively, are probably more transferable talents than Harden? Mm, yeah, probably. I mean, it, it, but it, again, we're really splitting hairs, and I think it might just be that we've all been a little bit unfair to Harden because, like, he, if you put Harden on the Lakers next year, I think he would still average 30 a game he just might he might not average 12 assists a game playing away from d'antoni but but he would still put up wild numbers and granted i yeah but, i know he's not averaging 12 assists but still like you know what i mean what i'm saying is how many situations is that going to are those numbers going to transfer to winning and i think guys like lebron and kd i mean you put them with almost any group of guys they're going to be pushing 48 50 wins right i mean with lebron we've kind of seen it with this random cast of characters they've thrown together this season changing their roster multiple times i mean he still carried them to a certain baseline i yeah. think my question with harden would be uh, if he's not fully comfortable, you know, uh, and he doesn't have exactly the right personnel around him, whether it's to cover up some of this stuff defensively or to, you know, space the core to give him maximum room, is his ceiling on a team with average talent a little bit lower than those other two guys? I think it would be. Um, and, you know, some, from that standpoint, I don't think he's underrated, but as long as you've got him in that second tier, like right near the top of that second tier of guys, I think that's where he belongs. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, I, I'm I'm not sure how I feel about it. And I think you were right at the outset that like the playoffs will ultimately decide where most of us land uh, in terms of Harden's value. One other question. Do you think Harden will be a unanimous winner this season? Because it seems like there's not much debate among most of the people who cover the league. No way. No way. I don't really? think he's because it politics, man. I think he's, he's still got some haters out there, pretty significant size of haters. And there's a lot of people who fall for the valiance thing that I was talking about earlier. And I've made this argument to you before is I think a lot of times writers picture themselves as, uh, you know, they're overworked. 
they're kind of self-involved. They're you know <laughs> thinking that they're underappreciated, and so they identify with stories like Westbrook or like that LeBron was your whole year argument last year. Is that every no, writer I was think imagining himself as Westbrook? Which I don't know. That seems a little implausible to me. That's definitely not why I voted for him. And for the record, the one thing that has annoyed me most about this season is listening to other NBA people deride Westbrook voters and say that everyone got swept up in the triple doubles because that wasn't why I voted for him either. And it's become like this go-to burn for other NBA writers. And I just think it's kind of lame. Here you go again. Here you go again. We know the reason why you got swept up was the game winner against Orlando, not the triple doubles. It's fine. Okay. You don't have to apologize anymore. Five game winners in the final two months. He went and took that award. Okay. And that's okay. If you say so, it's fine. Well, look, I, I, I just think, there is a tendency for whatever reason, and maybe it's because writers love a good story and you could take the other psycho babble stuff out of it if you don't want to believe that. But like uh-huh. the good story is not the team that cruises to 65 wins, right? The yeah. good story is like LeBron's team falls apart around him and look how amazing he's been in year 15, right? At age 33. That's the good story. The good story last year was like, Katie leaves Westbrook. How is he going to channel his scorn and hatred for the betrayal? You know, that's a good story. Sure. And I think the one downside of having writers vote for these awards is that they get caught up in writer things like narrative a lot. And I think okay. that's unavoidable. Well, see, you're triggering me in so many different ways on this podcast because I think the story should matter. I think that's how most fans understand the game. But it's a, I will say this, I, I hope that it isn't unanimous because I think a lot of these awards conversations become a victim of uh, like groupthink and become dominated by groupthink. And I, like the people who, who vote with their gut are oftentimes like uh, attacked online and people start looking up everyone's ballots. And I like, I think it's more fun to have disagreement as long as James Harden wins. That's really all that matters. Um, So I will bet you anything you want that it will not be unanimous. Okay. Well, good. I look forward to watching someone get shamed for voting for like uh, Victor Oladipo to win MVP. Um, Here's the thing though. I think there's going to be enough people who vote LeBron that uh-huh. none of the individual people will be shamed. That, that's how I think it's going to be. I okay. think I think Harden's going to win easily, but there there won't be just one person. It won't be like the year that Melo got one vote and we all had to laugh. By the way, that was another valiance voter. You know, Carmelo <laughs> carries the Knicks. You know, anyone could win with the Heatles, but Carmelo carries the Knicks. I mean, that was rough. Uh, yeah. And I think that's that's the easiest mistake, the easiest trap to fall into when you're voting. Well, the LeBron mention is a good segue because we have two questions about that. First, Scott says, let's say last season voters made the correct decision and Harden won MVP over Westbrook. In this new world with Harden winning MVP last year, would that affect his candidacy for this season and make LeBron the favorite? And then we also heard from LeBron James, who wrote into openfloormail at gmail.com and said, What an honor. (laughs) Yeah, it's a big milestone for us. So LeBron says, I would vote for me. The body of work, how I'm doing it, what's been happening with our team all year long, how we've got so many injuries and things of that nature, guys in and out. To be able to still keep this thing afloat, I would definitely vote for me. So, Ben, what do you think of LeBron's MVP candidacy? 
Well, like I said, I mean, he is appealing straight to those Valiance voters, and so good for him. He's on brand, on script perfectly, LeBron. He knows the message he needs to put out there. I just don't think it's going to be successful. But here's my question to you, because my thinking is on the verge of evolving here. Uh Uh-huh. So we've talked about how franchise players are basically franchises in the past where like they're so involved now with decision making, coaching selections, you know, uh, player additions. A lot of these guys are recruiting their buddies, teaming up. I mean, we've seen it now for almost a whole decade, right? Yeah. I'm wondering whether that that uh, sort of off court influence in terms of how active that player has or hasn't been involved in terms of crafting the culture should mm-hmm. now be part of this conversation too. And in, in past years, that could have probably really helped LeBron in years where he didn't win, where, you know, he put together an amazing team in Miami or, you know, he came back to Cleveland and, uh, you know, some situations where maybe there was MVP that's left on the table for him. But I also wonder this year when he's talking about, look what's happened Uh, around me with our roster. I mean, LeBron bears some of the responsibility for that too, right? So at this point of my voting career, I am not allowing that to factor or to influence into my decision. But I guess what I'm saying is, if we give LeBron the credit for building super teams that win a ton and then we vote him for MVP, do you also have to hold it against him that, uh, you know, Kyrie wanted to leave, that Isaiah Thomas and Jay Crowder just were not fits at all, that they had to turn over the roster twice this season. I mean, can LeBron really say that all this adversity around him is a reason to vote for him rather than a reason to maybe, you know, potentially vote against him? Yeah, that was definitely my reaction to reading that LeBron quote because it's like, you know, what's been happening with our team all year long, things of that nature. Like, half of that is because of LeBron. Um, And granted, like, some of it's more attenuated, but I mean... It's just been really difficult to separate LeBron from all the chaos in Cleveland. And he has been unbelievable offensively. Like, he looks more confident and more comfortable than we've ever seen from him. And he's kept the Cavs afloat through two or three different iterations of the roster. So it's strange to second-guess his MVP case. But for me, I, I appreciate that you are remaining objective but for me on principle it should matter that like he checked out for four to six weeks in the middle of the season and it should matter that for a team that has struggled on defense all year long LeBron has been going half speed on that end for all the entire season and so I mean none of this means that he's not the best player on earth I think over the last two months we've been reminded just how incredible he really is but I think I would rather acknowledge that with all NBA voting than MVP voting, because I think if we're grading him specifically on what happened to the Cavs in this regular season, the story is more complicated than just like, OMG, LeBron really is the GOAT. Like, I don't know, LeBron definitely played a role in what happened with Kyrie. He is one reason that that the back end of that roster was stocked with like uh, washed up veterans. And I think... He's also the reason that they have been able to salvage things, but it's just, it's a complicated deal. Yeah, no, and I guess I am holding it against him indirectly because, you know, they're only going to win like 50 games, right? There's a big difference between 50 wins and 65 wins. Yeah. And so some of LeBron's role in that, in those, uh, you know, circumstances winds up penalizing him when I get to sort of the team success or the role part of, uh, you know, each guy's candidacy. So I think it does get counted against him, but I just want to look at these off-court things from a few other perspectives, too, because like for Steph Curry, for example, let's say he had a perfect health this season, had a great season, monster numbers, right? But some people would not vote for it because 
you know, Kevin Durant decided to, to team up with him, right? Well, sure. if Steph Curry was part of the reason why Kevin Durant wanted to go to Golden State, doesn't that enhance Curry's case uh, in that situation? Uh, and similar for Harden, like, do we penalize Harden for being able to successfully recruit and attract a guy like Chris Paul to add to his system and to make them even more devastating and, and more overwhelming to opponents? It seems like, if anything, the help that he's been able to get uh, from Chris Paul would be a benefit to Harden's case, not a, a detraction against it. So I think we're getting to the position here as player movement, whether free agency, force trades, or just sort of, you know, the chess moves that we love talking about incessantly, uh-huh. it continues to shape the championship race and continues to shape the very best teams in the NBA. We should start as voters to think a little bit more deeply about these dynamics and not just write guys off automatically because they're on a, a quote unquote super team or because they've attracted a talent or what have you. You know, like if Kevin Durant, for example, had been healthy all 82 this season and had put up monster numbers for Golden State, and let's say they had won you know, 68 or 69 games like they should have if they've been trying all season long. Right. Uh, I know there's voters out there who would still favor LeBron over Durant simply because he decided to join a super team. And I think that's another situation here where narrative can kind of get in the way of of, uh, candidacies. And it's not happening this year because neither Steph nor Katie truly had a strong MVP case uh, after the injury shook uh, shook out and after Golden State, you know, was somewhat disappointing. But I think this is definitely like the variable to watch, you know? Yeah, I guess so. I don't really worry about that as much because I think that the MVP isn't the only way that we recognize great players. And like, if the trade-off for Steph and KD is not winning MVP but winning four or five titles over the next ten years, then like, they, they will grade out better than someone like Harden historically. So it won't really matter. Uh, but it's a good point, and the same is true with LeBron. By the way, obviously, <laughs> like I don't think anybody's worried about. Harden overtaking LeBron, it's like in terms of stature league wide. Um, do yeah, you but have... we we do know what well, one second though, because we do know one person who who is a little bit worried about his lack of MVPs, and that's LeBron. Otherwise, he wouldn't be out there campaigning so forcefully. He would be emailing open floor mail at gmail dot com to let us know his <laughs> thoughts about he should be the MVP. He okay. cares, but and let's think, be real. Like, I, I, I'm with you. Look, yeah. I, I'm with you on the big picture of the legacy stuff. You're dead right. But these guys are still proud. They still want to be recognized as the best. And LeBron's definitely got some left on the table. I'm still mad on behalf of Michael Jordan. He's got some MVPs left on the table. And of all the awards, you can't just tell LeBron, hey, congratulations. You're still all NBA first team. Don't worry, buddy. We we know how good you are. I'm just saying I'm not weeping for LeBron, LeBron's reputation or Michael Jordan's reputation. I mean, when all things are said and done, LeBron's going to be the second best player of all time or maybe considered the best player of all time so and same same deal with jordan so it doesn't really matter that they didn't win that many mvps um my but, one, but you can acknowledge that they'd be bugged by it right or they'd sure, be annoyed by it sure okay. um use that energy for the playoffs lebron um but uh but we do appreciate the email so the last question here before we move on do you have a top five set yet because i'm I intended to have a top five ready, but I am still, uh, I don't know. I, I'm going back and forth over the over two through five. Uh, I will have it set and teaser alert. It will be revealed next week on SI.com in my okay. big awards column. So I'm going to hold off. But I think it's mostly the usual suspects. I think most people realize you know, who's in that conversation at this point. Um, the exact order will require some deep dive, you know, statistical analysis, blog boy type behavior, but, uh, (laughs) I don't think there's going to be any shocking revelations, but you know, that actually undercuts my tease. So look, 
Guys, you will not believe what I'm going to come up with on my MVP ballot next week. Please click. <laughs> All right, good. Well, let's move on then. We can both reveal our lists next week. Uh, Tom says, I just remembered back to how Sharp mentioned Dwight Howard's MVP odds before the start of the season and how that was possibly the most depressing timeline for the season, a Dwight MVP. So what's your take on the best worst-case scenario for finals MVP? I couldn't get past Markel Fultz finals MVP as the greatest possible scenario for these playoffs as he rises from the dead to deliver a ring for Philly. And then the worst case is probably DeMar DeRozan in a matchup with Houston. What do you guys think? Uh, Do you have any answers? Yeah, you go first. I mean, how are you defining worst at best, though? Like your favorite or like worst for the league or or like what's your criteria here? Well, it's funny you should ask because I was thinking... My personal best case scenario is probably Otto Porter finals MVP, but that would also represent like most people's worst case scenario uh, because like the litany of disasters that would have to strike various contenders for Otto Porter to win MVP would be, would really be a a dark timeline for the, for the league. Um, But my best case is yes, Otto Porter or Bradley Beal for the Wizards, and then thinking through the worst case, it would be someone like like Thaddeus Young winning for the Pacers. <laughs> like, I feel like someone just ultra vanilla in a series that everyone prefers to forget as soon as it's over. Yeah, so I was a little bit wackier in terms of what I was thinking. So I think sometimes the best case is just the thing that no one could have predicted that would caused the most rewrites possible you know like the mind-blowing moment of like oh my god like we know what's on this coming everything we thought we knew is out the window uh-huh. i think from that standpoint and this might blow your mind i think the best finals mvp would be russell westbrook <laughs> i really do because <laughs> think about what would have to happen for the thunder to win the title you know i mean they would have to get past <laughs> golden state so all the stuff about the three-point talking would go out the window then all the trash talk about how bad carmelo's been all this year and how shallow they are and how pressy like kind of screwed up even though everyone praised him last summer that would all have to be completely rewritten Presti would be a god you know he would be an unassailable god (laughs) if the Thunder won a title and then everything we've said about Westbrook especially myself in terms of how he you know he plays with purpose but he doesn't play with a purpose I'd have to run away from that take like full speed (laughs) Usain Bolt style if he won finals MVP I mean imagine a world where the Thunder win a title and Westbrook's the finals MVP I think that would be I, it's hard to imagine a better, well, funnier, so, like more crazy, like hypothetical scenario. Let me push back a little bit because I think you are very close to the right answer. You just picked the wrong Thunder player. The best Finals MVP would clearly be Carmelo after a year <laughs> of the basketball internet shitting all over his game and like rethinking the last fifteen years of his career. Watching him win win MVP would be amazing. And again, I've always had a soft spot for his game. Let's let's make it happen. Can I say that I am stunned in terms of the worst finals MVP that you didn't pick Al Horford? I mean, I, I would have taken that one to Vegas and bet that you would have said <laughs> Al Horford for this question. Well, all right. So Thad Young is kind of like Al Horford, but not actually good. So that's even more depressing than Al Horford. Yeah, but then you'd have to hear about it from Celtics fans who would be up on the highest of horses <laughs> saying, 
Look, we can't give the finals MVP to Brad, and we all know Brad deserves <laughs> it. We have to give it to a player, so we're going to give it to Al because oh my he was God. the rocket. That's and a great the two-way point. versatility. They would try to give this, the finals MVP to Brad Stevens if, if the Celtics won with this current roster, and I think that would probably have to be the darkest timeline. But I, I have another. I have another one that would drive you crazy. By the okay. way, and it's somewhat plausible. Lamarcus Aldridge. Like if the Spurs just went on like a ram, uh, like a rampant defensive rampage, shut down all these teams, uglied the game up, and Aldridge averaged like twenty two points a game and like eight rebounds. You know, in the finals, in some sloppy series, um, <laughs> and potentially over like the Raptors or the Celtics or whoever, and it was just sort of like the best guy left standing. I think that would really anger you as well. It would rewrite a lot of narratives too, by the way. Well, uh, it would, that would be another one to keep your eye on. Yeah, it wouldn't bother me as much, honestly. I, I have a soft spot for this skeleton skeleton crew Spurs team, and uh, it's been really weird to watch them continue to thrive this year. And I think like if LaMarcus Aldridge comes out and averages like 45 points a game, uh, number one, I think... At that point, we really do have to think seriously about electing Greg Popovich president. Um, but I would be happy to see Lamarcus get the recognition because he's another guy who's really like taken a lot of heat over the last like eight to ten years. Okay, I've got another best nomination. This one you might accuse me of shamelessness, but I'm I'm going to go with it anyways. So what about Ben Simmons? Because we had the Markel Fultz nomination, but what if Ben Simmons just basically proves all the doubters wrong, leads this up-and-coming Sixers team through the playoffs? Maybe they catch some breaks and some other team knocks out LeBron so they don't have to deal with it. Ben Simmons winds up being sort of the rookie, like kind of like Magic, you know, like Kareem got hurt, so Magic had to step forward. You know, Embiid gets hurt. Ben Simmons has to step forward a little bit. And you've got the international flavor in terms of him being Australian finals MVP from Australia. You know, the new world order of basketball is here. Philly takes over the world. I think that would be a pretty delicious and and juicy finals MVP as well. I think that would be really cool. It would be great for the league because, I mean, we would spend the next six months talking about how incredible the Sixers are and it would, yeah, it would Sixers just, dynasty yeah like the NBA is already about as exciting as it's been in the last like 20 or 30 years but a, a true Sixers dynasty being born would take it all to another level I just don't think it would be quite as incredible as Markel Fultz like Markel Fultz I would be on my deathbed talking about the rookie year of Markel Fultz where he misses seven months and then comes back and dominates the playoffs um but it is a good segue to our next question, which is from Brian, who asks, has Brett Brown been attending open mic nights at Kyrie's coffee shop? Read this first paragraph from the Hornet Sixers recap this weekend. And it's Brett Brown saying, you're in the NBA current that pulls you along in good ways, and sometimes it can suck you out to sea. It's a violent thing you go through, and it's just never ending. We're in a good current right now, so that moves us along. We want more, and we know... We always have to play better defense and bide our time without Joel. Uh, and I really appreciate that submission from Brian in large part because like Brett Brown's coach poetry is, is part of what makes him, I think my favorite coach of the NBA because like through covering the Sixers the last year or two, he says so many things that are so off the wall that like I can't even really put them in stories because they make everyone do a double take but he's just like he's always there ready to sort of take things like talk about the Sixers as if he's Hemingway 
Yeah, ride the waves, bro. No, I, I kind of see it more. Almost, I don't know if he's the the poet. I almost see him more as like that surfer philosopher, you know. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's the the Australian, you know, down under stereotype that we have here in America. But I could just see him. He's the guy, at, you know, at the bar at the you know the beachside bar who just has just dispensing Jimmy Buffett wisdom. <laughs> you know. Well, he's seen some shit, man. I mean, he's he's got a lot of hard won wisdom. Uh, from his journey through basketball. And I guess we should also add, it seems like, I mean, knock on wood here, it seems like Embiid might be okay and might be able to return for the playoffs. Maybe, like, when we talked on Thursday night, I was definitely more freaked out, um, and you were able to talk me off the ledge. And it certain like, early on here, we've gotten some good indications out of Philly. Yeah, and Ben Simmons has been balling. And, you know, the one question I asked you, you know, does this decide the rookie of the year race? Did I call it? I mean, are people getting around Ben Simmons here in this final push? It kind of feels that way, doesn't it? I don't know. I judge off the Twitter, the Twitterati, you know, but (laughs) it seemed like there's a lot of buzz for Simmons here over these last couple of days. And uh, they got a couple wins, too, which, you know, that was a question I asked as well is how do you handle it in the short term? And I think, you know, best case scenario, it's been business as usual. I mean, Ben Simmons just, you know, going out there, putting up amazing stat lines, getting back to his home theater system, talking trash over video games with Carl Anthony Towns <laughs> and, you know, rinse and repeat just another day for Benno. Yeah, you know, he's been really good. And it, it I am starting to rethink my stance on the rookie of the year race in part because like. If I went with Donovan Mitchell, it would be largely for the sake of trolling my Sixers friends and like taking an embrace debate stance with you, <laughs> like for the sake of the pod and making it more entertaining. I might play devil's advocate with Sim- with uh, Mitchell, but Simmons has just been steadily awesome all year long, and and he's gotten a lot better over the final like two two and a half months. So. We'll see. I haven't totally made up my mind yet, but I will say I'm not gonna be I'm not gonna be obnoxiously wrong just for the sake of like stirring up debate here. Look, Andrew, I'm a practical guy, you know, reality based person. It doesn't matter what, what you front about, what you say on this podcast. It just uh-huh. matters which lever you pull on election day. So just make <laughs> the right choice. <laughs> right. When you're in that voting booth, it's just you and the paper. Okay, so make the right choice. If you want to come on here and you know throw out some wacky theories, that's fine. You know. We, we know how you roll. Just make sure you do the right thing when push comes to shove. All right. Well, let's move on then to another topic, which I think has generated more text messages from you over the past month than any other story oh, yeah. this season. Andre says, Ben Golliver taught me not to judge a team based on one or two games. However... The Spurs had two pretty good games against Western Conference powerhouses, OKC and Houston. And yes, it's true that Houston sat CP3 for that game on Sunday, but the Spurs kept the hottest team in the league to 7 for 31 from three-point range. Did Popovich just show us the kind of defense they will be using in the playoffs? Should we read too much into those games? And look, that's a perfectly good question. That Houston win was very impressive. But Ben, how can we be expected to talk about the actual Spurs games when Kawhi Watch continues to escalate every single week? So where are you on Kawhi Watch? You can mention the Spurs if you if you like. Look, all the ladies out there, if your husband wants to have an apartment in the city for work, 
That's a red flag, okay? If if he lives with you at a house, but he says, I need an apartment in, at, in the city for work, red flag. It's probably not for work. If Kawhi is leaving San Antonio to go back to New York again to his apartment in the city in New York, that's a red flag. And if I'm the Spurs, look, I've been trying to do some digging on this, and no one really seems to have a great idea of what's going on with Kawhi Leonard. But I do have one more theory here I want to throw out uh, for you, Andrew. And you tell me if you think this passes the the smell test in terms Mm -hmm. of what's been going on. Because it's been a back and forth. It's almost like they're negotiating, and is he going to be there? I'm coming back to San Antonio, and now I'm going to a player's meeting. Things fall apart. I'm out of there. I'm going back to New York. Uh, It's a real saga. So what if this is the situation? You know, if you're Kawhi's people, your big concern is not compromising that Supermax contract next summer, right? Yeah. What if you get to a situation where you're like, look, guys, we know you want him back for this season. You have a shot at the Western Conference Finals. If he plays, we understand that. But if he plays, there is a risk of injury. We want to be sure that that Supermax is still going to be there for him this summer if he happens to get injured. Doesn't that seem like a possible impasse, Andrew? If they, if Kawhi's people put that to San Antonio, if you're San Antonio... Can you just automatically write that Supermax contract no matter what happens to Kawhi here? I mean, if that quad injury comes back again uh, and he misses significantly more time and it adds on to this previous injury history, is Kawhi necessarily a no-brainer Supermax guy when you've also seen what's happened to Blake Griffin, say uh, John Wall, even Russell Westbrook to a certain extent when you look at how huge those contracts are? You have to at least pause a little bit, right? And so I could see a situation where at some point they said, hey, we want assurances on the Supermax. San Antonio said no. And then Kawhi's people are like, well, cool, then we can't bring him back. I could easily see that being the way it played out. What do you think? Well, I like that theory a lot. And I think it dovetails nicely with something that I heard uh, last week when the Spurs were in D.C. Where it was just someone spitballing, but basically theorizing that Kawhi trusted the Spurs when he came back in during last year's playoffs and he is like physically he hasn't been right for more than a year now and he trusted the Spurs when they said you're good to go come back and then he he re-injured himself in that Warriors series and it's possible that in Kawhi's mind like he he wasn't ready uh, or he thinks he wasn't ready and he he sort of connects the injury even though to me it it sort of looked like a, a freak accident but basically the idea is that Kawhi doesn't totally trust the Spurs doctors, and if he does, it like it's possible that that's true in conjunction with him wanting a guarantee on the the supermax deal that would be waiting for him. And look, I totally agree. We've talked about this all season long that those supermax deals hurt teams as much as they help him help them, and it wouldn't surprise me if the Spurs are are sitting there kind of calling Kawhi's bluff to some degree or also saying look we really like you but we need to see you play before we commit 220 million dollars to you over the next five years because that is like it's a big ask even if Kawhi is healthy and dominant but given the way this season has unfolded like I don't blame them at all for feeling a little bit reluctant yeah, and again, you know, we're we're speculating here, but if you're San Antonio and you've kind of put this on the table, it's a negotiation. You're saying, look, we're not going to uh, give you that guarantee, but we would love to have you back on the court. We've paid you, you know, max level money on your second contract. We've supported you throughout your career. Guys like Manu are openly weeping in the press about you <laughs> returning. Just yeah. 
come back and be a team player and trust us that we're going to work this out. And you could understand why that would be a reasonable position for them to take. And if Kawhi just says no, you know, or his people say, no, we don't trust you. Uh, you know, we want to guarantee you could see why that would be an impasse. I mean, to me, it's the most plausible theory that I've heard. Um, and again, it would also explain to a certain degree Kawhi's uh, reluctance to talk about the situation, right? Because if he came out and said, this is where we're at, that would not make him look good. People would say, look, you got to go earn your next contract on the court. I'm not saying that that would be a fair interpretation, but that's what the public sentiment would be, don't you think? Well, all right, fine. But I also think that you're kind of burying the lead here because what you really think is that the Spurs have been pushed too far and that there's a good chance that this ends with Kawhi getting traded in the next three or four months, which is like... Now being echoed from other reporters, I think Brian Windhorst reported that teams are circling the Spurs and ready to pounce uh, in case Kawhi is available this June. So do you really think that that's a possibility? I think we've both kind of been there and been wondering about it for a while. And where do you think he could go? So I'll put it this way. At the All-Star break, if you had asked me, I'd say... No chance. Yeah. At this point, based on stuff that I've heard and just the way that it has dragged out, how weird it's been. And also the fact that like you have to have a rock solid relationship with your Supermax guy. You have to have that hometown hero, uh, no cracks in the armor type of relationship to invest Supermax money because you're saying this is our entire franchise for the duration of that deal. We're building around him. Otherwise, you get into a situation like Wizards fans right now where you're like, oh my God, you know, how many years <laughs> left on Wall's deal? You don't want to be there if hey, you're a smart organization. Let right? me tell you something. John Wall came back this weekend. He looks 15 pounds lighter. He looks great. And uh, I'm all the way back in. So we'll get to that later on this spring. But I'm not, I'm not here to complain about John Wall. That was a great, great contract. Okay, for once you're not. Uh, the last six <laughs> months tell a different story. But look, uh, I think San Antonio, if they're th- thinking has it shifted from the All-Star break, that would be surprising, right? And I would be more surprised if there were not Kawhi trade rumors this summer than oh, if yeah, there were. And if, sure. you're, and if you're San Antonio, I think it becomes tricky because he's in that situation where he does hold a lot of the cards, right? I mean, there's basically one year left on his contract, essentially, if you're trying to trade him this summer. Uh, you have no idea what's going on in his head because it's been such a weird circumstance. Do you trade him somewhere he wants to go to maybe get better value? Do you just dump him off to a sad sack team with you know picks and, and young prospects coming back and you just sort of build with uh, you know whatever you can that way? You're also under the gun because guys like Lamarcus, Pau Gasol, people who you've paid, even Patty Mills to a certain degree, Right. Uh, those guys expect to win now, right? So there's not really the the chance of a, a true rebuilding window. So that will be an insane negotiation. And it will also be fascinating to see what kind of price he gets. Because I've seen some of these Kawhi trades floating around on Twitter. I think that they would be able to get a lot less than sort of these a, A-list type prospects that people are trying to include. Like a guy like Jason Tatum is a popular one out there. Do you actually think in a Kawhi trade, San Antonio would be able to pull Jason Tatum right now, given that he'd be entering year two of basically, you know, protected contracts that would go on for like eight or nine years. Right. And he would be cheap throughout that entire time period. I, you know, it it pains me to say this because I am a fan of Kawhi Leonard's game. The way things have played out, I think he's really hurt his trade value and he's put San Antonio in a tough situation. Yeah, I think there's too much uncertainty with his health. Um, And I mean, who knows? what the real story is behind the scenes, but he didn't look great when he came back for those two weeks in the middle of the season. So I think the 
mostly reasonable worry about his health is going to be a factor in any trade discussion. And like you said, well, the idea it should. That, I mean, he's like, never Andrew. He's he's never played seventy five games in his career. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's that's a red flag right there. Well, I, that coupled with the impending free agency is going to drive the, the value down a lot because even if Kawhi commits, a team like Boston isn't going to be like overjoyed about throwing another massive deal at somebody when they already have Hayward on their roster. It's messed up. But if they did like from Boston's standpoint, it would make the most sense to trade Hayward, which they definitely won't do because it would be like the most heartless move of all time after uh, the Isaiah deal. But like they, I mean, that makes sense on paper at least. Um, But I don't think I agree with you that it seems pretty far-fetched that they would trade Tatum for Kawhi. And I also think that if they trade Tatum, it's going to be for Anthony Davis um, because the way they've been building that team, it's pretty well known that the the Celtics have their eyes on AD. And uh, I don't think that they're going to really like be thrilled to um, roll the dice on Kawhi. My favorite idea that you had was was the idea of a spite trade to the Phoenix Suns, our our favorite team in the league, uh, where they get back Josh Jackson and Dragon Bender and just, just ship Kawhi out to the desert. Yeah, I mean, that would be the like, look, Kawhi, you cross the family. All right, we're done with you and we're not going to work with you. And we're getting out in front as fast as possible. And we don't want to try to repair this. And we're just going to trade you to the thirstiest GM who needs talent and to try to save his job. And we're going to just try to poach whatever young assets we can poach. But, you know, notice the name you didn't mention, which is Devin Booker. And again, like, I don't think if you're trading Kawhi Leonard this summer, given the circumstances, you can get that true, like, A-list level type prospect. You're probably settling. And that's where it gets to be a dicey, uh, you know, thing for the Spurs because do you does that urge you to go back towards hardball, right? Like with Lamarcus, they had to have that frank conversation, just being like, "Look, you know, we can't get what we want for you, so we can't trade you." I mean, the same thing could happen with Kawhi again, where like they go surface the market, there is no A list prospect out there, uh, and they have to go back to him and say, "Look, we have to find some way to figure this out, man. Like we right. can still offer you more money than anybody. Let's do this, but." Uh, it's so hard to, to, to prognosticate just because Kawhi has not made his intentions known. But I would just say he has a lot of leverage here. Like these trips to New York are huge red flags, leaving the team during the season, huge red flag. And it does feel like, you know, his people could be trying to position him for an exit. And I guess, uh, you know, the smart GMs would be circling this, trying to buy low on Kawhi Leonard, trying to throw those garbage offers out there to snag him, uh, you know, and, and see how that plays out. What about... Let's throw a couple more out there. What about Miami? If they if they put up Josh Richardson and Justice Winslow and uh, some salary filler, I'm not sure who else they would have to include, but it, a deal built, built around those two, do you think that would, would work? I mean, to me, that is the right ballpark. And I'm sure there's going to be listeners who are like, you know, swerving off the road in traffic <laughs> or like, you know, like dropping no, the soap at the shower, just like this. losing their mind. But yeah, there's there's no, not if, there's not a lot of examples of of superstars bringing back fair value, particularly with free agency looming. So we should we should start from the assumption that like the Spurs are going to get fifty cents on the dollar at best. Yeah, that's very important, and I think also you start the assumption that they're going to want picks and they're going to value that heavily because 
you know, they built their, you know, entire, you know, championship 20 year core off yeah. of draft pick guys, you know? So, uh, you know, that's going to be thrown in too, but yeah, I think you're, you're now in the right area. And I think when you start imagining some of these players like a Josh Jackson or a Richardson in San Antonio, uh, and that's no offense to Miami. It is offense to Phoenix, by the way. That's no offense <laughs> to Miami. Like those players start to sound better as Spurs, don't they? Sure. Absolutely. And then I think we would be remiss if we didn't mention the Lakers potential, right? Because the one blue chip prospect that could be available, maybe possibly, is if the Lakers put Brandon Ingram on the table. And I don't even know if they would have to attach him to Lonzo or Kuzma in that scenario. Um, it'll kind of depend on how competitive the market is. But, I mean, I could see that maybe working for both sides. And if, if I were the Spurs, to come away from this Kawhi saga with Brandon Ingram to build around for the next 10 years, I think that would be a massive, massive win. And and honestly, like probably preferable to paying Kawhi $220 million over the next five years. Yeah, I mean, if there's one front office guy who is going to say, I don't care about this recent uh, standard of paying 50 cents on the dollar for superstars, just give me the superstar. Isn't it magic? (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Wouldn't that be magic's mentality of like, yeah, sure, we could groom Ingram for three years, or you could just give me Kawhi Leonard and I'll give him max money right now. We've got... uh, We've got a building block for the summer, you know, and certainly that would make a lot of sense for them if they start to feel like they're not in the uh, LeBron mix, you know, not in the LeBron James sweepstakes. Like that's a really good backup plan. You know, no one's calling you a loser of the summer if you come away with Kawhi Leonard, you know, because top five talent went healthy. I mean, for the Lakers, that would be a huge win. Um, But, you know, fit wise, again, like Kawhi's personality, like does that hold things back? Like if you're the Lakers, can you can you pitch a team? Uh, built around Kawhi Leonard, if he's your best player and he's not willing to be marketable and he's not willing to be the face and he's not willing to do interviews and that that franchise is just obsessed with all of those things, that's kind of a weird fit too. That would give me pause a little bit. And again, people are going to think I'm killing or crushing Kawhi Leonard here. I'm not. I mean, these are just you know, facts that we have to uh, yeah you know, we have to admit right now based on how this season has gone. Well, and you you are like a little bit disappointed in the way this has gone as a longtime Spurs acolyte. I think you're bummed that Kawhi has chosen to play it this way, correct? Oh, I well, I would be almost for any franchise if he's healthy. I mean, again, we don't know, but yeah. if he's healthy and he's just choosing to stay away, and I personally believe that he's able to take the court right now because if he wasn't, we would not be hearing the type of stuff we've heard from their front office or their coaching staff, you know, kind of leaking out. And then also Tony Parker and Manu Ginobili. Those guys know how to keep stuff in-house. And they've been taking pot shots at Kawhi. And you also have to consider the the team we're talking about. I mean, the Spurs are infamous, or, or well, maybe not infamous, but the Spurs take the long view more than any other team in the league. They're not the team that's out here rushing guys back. I mean, over the last five or six years, they have sort of pioneered rest. So if they feel like he's ready to play, chances are he 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 is. Not only that, they take care of their players on the contracts, you know? Yeah. And so if it is this big impasse over uh, the Supermax deal, I mean, every single guy who's gone there who's earned the money has gotten paid, right? I mean, that's why guys stay there forever because they – they find a deal that makes sense and they convince people, you know, in some cases to take discounts even to stay there because the situations, uh, you know, are so favorable. So, yeah, I mean, I think I'm disappointed in Kawhi because he's not explaining his side of the situation and either he's getting bad advice or he doesn't have a side that he wants to share publicly. or He doesn't feel like he can share it because he'll get killed for it. Um, that's disappointing. But also all the warning signs are there that they've just kind of turned on him. 
And that's tough because he was supposed to be a spur for life. I mean, that was the story. And that story got blown up pretty hard this season. Yeah. Um, Okay. Two more potential destinations. I'll give you 60 seconds. Kevin says, what about Kawhi to the Bucks for, say, Golliver, all NBA pro, Chris Middleton, Jabari Parker, and maybe another piece? And then Taylor says, what about Kawhi to the Jazz? Imagine a defense bolstered by Gobert and Kawhi. I'm not even a Jazz fan, and that makes my heart skip a beat. Um, But he adds, he he realizes all of this drama with Kawhi on the Spurs seems to be because Kawhi wants to be in a bigger market. So what do you think of those last two possibilities real quick? Yeah, well, we don't know Kawhi wants to be in a bigger market. We have no idea what Kawhi wants. But if we were assembling a list of big market teams, I hope we don't start with Utah and Milwaukee. Thanks, Andrew. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> no, I, the Bucks fit to me, I think stylistically, I, I think it's more questionable. Uh, I think Giannis needs to be running up and down and really pushing the pace. I think mm-hmm. for Kawhi, uh, the more isolation style, you know, that's that's going to be how he wants to play. I think the fit in Utah would be a dream. Be uh, you know, we talked about the potential of Paul George to Philly. I mean, a similar situation would be Kawhi to Utah in terms of you know how that would just steal up an identity. Uh, it would allow uh, you know another scoring option to you know lineups that could use them. Uh, it would increase their versatility and inter- interchangeability. I mean, yes, that would be fantastic. But uh, you know, I think unfortunately those kinds of dreams rarely get realized. You know, like the Utah Jazz, like striking you know lucking into a top five talent <laughs> doesn't seem very. Uh, this is very, seem very plausible, but hey, who knows? Hey, you know, crazier things have happened. Right now, every dream is at least a little bit possible after the la- after the weirdness of the last six months. Um, but well, let me flip this around on you. You're giving me these time limits and all this stuff, like thinking you're in control <laughs> of this podcast. I mean, look, if you're Kawhi, and okay, you're an established All NBA level player, MVP candidate, yeah, Defensive Player of the Year candidate, perennially. You've had some health issues, which that's going to enter into your factor. You want to earn big money and potentially earn more sneaker money. What's your short list look like? Who are the franchises that you're interested in playing for? Um, first on my list would be the Miami Heat, because I think you're going to an easier conference, <clears throat> great culture, a franchise that has, it like clearly knows how to win and knows what they're doing. And I think Kawhi, I don't know how much he is taking for granted in terms of what he grew up around in San Antonio, uh, but I think he may value that more more than other players. Um, and I, it would just be a really nice fit, uh, particularly if they can keep Dragic. And the Lakers, I mean, from a fan standpoint, it would be really interesting to see him thrown in as at the center of that circus. But, I mean, if I were Kawhi, I would be a little bit reluctant to, to commit to that. Um, and in terms of, like, the the marketing platform Miami gives you like ninety five percent of what you'd be getting in L A. Um, so well maybe not that much but eighty percent of what you'd be getting in L A. and so I would say Miami L A. and then number three would be like the whichever team gives me the best shot at winning a title outside those top two. Yeah, I mean, I think Miami probably gives you 60% of the visibility as the Lakers, but it gives you 5% of the drama, and that could be the right yeah. formula for Kawhi, right? Because you don't have to deal with being the face of the Lakers. You're not going to get 
the whole LeBron, you know, craziness sideshow that followed the Heatles because that was a LeBron phenomenon. That wasn't sort of like a local Miami interest phenomenon. Right. And I think like even look at Wade after LeBron left or even Wade now, like that guy is still a huge superstar in terms of casual fans. Right. But he's not subject to like daily scrutiny. And I think Kawhi would be able to kind of just live his life and, you know, be a star, yeah, but not it's kind you know, of be the completely best of overwhelmed worlds. by it. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Exactly. So uh, that that could be a fit. I mean, we talked about Paul George to Philly. Wouldn't the Sixers be a pretty nice fit too? I mean, well, yeah, that's actually a really good point. Um, the the problem is I don't know how you get there. I mean, the Spurs aren't going to be thrilled about bringing back like Robert Covington and Dario Saric and and Jared B- Bayless's contract in a Kawhi trade. Yeah, or maybe they would. I mean, Covington would Covington would be a great spur. You know, yeah. I, I'm with the Sixers fans who love Covington. I mean, I, I, it's not the world's greatest package, but if you're getting picks, I mean, maybe you talk yourself into it. I don't know. Uh, uh, I could, in terms of like the best fits in the Eastern Conference, I mean, I feel like they're in the conversation. Uh, and, you know, Miami, as you rightly identified, I just would put both of those situations before a team like, you know, Milwaukee. Uh, who the emailer mentioned or whoever else. And then trading within the Western Conference is pretty dicey too. Um, yeah. I do think, you know, just if you're the Spurs, you send them East um, or you send them to just a team that's hopeless, you know, <laughs> if it's Phoenix or, or whoever, well, where you're not yeah, constantly no. <laughs> worried about being victimized. I think to be clear and to wrap this up, if you're the Spurs and you really do think that this relationship has deteriorated beyond the point of no return, you are calling the Lakers like, every day beginning in June, ready to make a deal and ready to bring back Brandon Ingram um, because I think that would be phenomenal for them. But we'll see where it goes. You know, Kawhi Watch continues. They, honestly, like he could come back next week and, and be ready to suit up for the playoffs. And I wouldn't be totally shocked because it's been that impossible to predict. Um, it does seem like things have gotten worse, though. Oh, they definitely have. Like I said, I mean, the apartment in the city is a red flag. <laughs> yeah. He's going to New York and off like this guy's got frequent flyer miles, you know, stacked up well, with all these trips. Yeah, to New York and he's city. working I mean, out at the Spurs Players fan. Association. I mean, the whole thing is just bizarre. Um, but speaking of New York City, that's actually a good transition here. Khalid says the Knicks continue to be a disgusting display of incompetence. As we look toward next season, Jeff Hornacek will probably be fired. And he's being—he's rumored to be replaced with either Doc Rivers or Mark Jackson. I personally am not excited by either option. I don't know why sports franchises continue to re- recycle old coaches. Who would make your list of future coaches with Brad Stevens and Eric Spolstra potential? Current college coaches, NBA assistants, former players, etc. Um, do you have any nominations here? Look, this one's tricky because the people who make these lists a lot of times are really good sources for media members. Yep. You know, like those are the guys who find themselves on like the hottest young assistant. Well, that's the guy who will talk to you and, and help you with background for a story about a player. So, you know, you're doing them a solid and you're putting them on those lists. So um, I think that's really tricky. I will say this. When the Celtics hired Brad Stevens, I was in on it. Like I thought that that was a really inspired, I really wanted the Thunder to hire Brad Stevens like 10 years ago or whenever they still had uh, Harden, Russ, and KD. Yeah, but part of my logic behind why I liked uh, the Brad Stevens, and I think you could say this for Spolstra too, is like you don't have questions about the ownership group or the management group. So yeah. that's when you take a chance on that type of coach who has a high ceiling, but also maybe a low floor. Like there was a possibility 
you know, and it existed at the time anyway, when you're analyzing the Brad Stevens hire that like the players would just think he was a nerd. You know, you throw him into the wrong locker room, they tune him out. He has no chance, right? That's not how it played out. He wound up coming off great and, and he grew into the position and they improved their win total every year, but that was not guaranteed to happen. Yeah. And I think with the Knicks, those are huge questions. Before you can ever talk about the coach, you have to talk about ownership and their patience level. And you have to talk about management, which is young and, you know, in terms of experience, at least. And in Steve Mills's case, has a really bad track record. I mean, this guy, this guy, when he's been involved, like lots of bad things have happened. So, um, yeah, Jeff Hordasek is gone. I think we could all agree about that. Uh, but I don't think this coaching hire is really that important. You know, they, first of all, they need talent and they have <laughs> very, very little talent. You think they're regardless, basically. That's your take. Well, no, I just think we're going to be sitting here talking in two years about, you know, are the Knicks going to fire their coach? Yeah, because they haven't made any significant progress in terms of improving the ownership and their rosters in shambles. So why are we even trying to, like, you know, pr- pray for some, like, amazing salvation coach? It's just not going to happen. Come on. Yeah. Too much uh, institutional baggage here. I think in fairness, though, I don't blame Khalid for feeling particularly frustrated with the prospect of hiring Doc Rivers or or Mark Jackson. And I don't know. I mean, I've been thinking about this a lot because of the Bucks search as well. And people are throwing out names like Kevin McHale and Jeff Van Gundy, who Jeff Van Gundy hasn't coached in the NBA in like 15 years. And I don't understand how every spring he's the hottest candidate on the market. And like... I guess he's sort of like the the John Gruden of the NBA coaching rumors, but I just wouldn't be that excited to hire any of those guys. And I guess if I am thinking about this as a fan, I would want my team to at least try to find the next Brad Stevens or Eric Spolstra. I mean, and as far as our nominations, I mean, uh, I've heard Nick Nurse, an assistant for the Raptors, mentioned a lot. Um among college coaches, it's definitely not the best year to stand out for Tony Bennett from UVA. But like when the Wizards job was open, I really wanted them to to talk to him. And uh, I would also say Jaron Collins from the Warriors could be a pretty interesting candidate. It's hard with assistants because like sometimes you get someone from the Spurs and he turns into Mike Budenholzer, who's been pretty fantastic. Uh, And then sometimes it's Jock Vaughn. And so like, you just never really know, but I would much rather roll the dice with someone who has real upside rather than just be like, all right, we're going to pay $25 million for someone who is going to top out as like a middle 10 coach in the NBA. Yeah, what about this scenario for the Bucks? I heard this one kind of whispered about. I mean, again, these these are just conversations that friends are having on text messages that we're gonna put on uh, we're gonna put on the podcast for our listeners. What about Jeff Van Gundy in a coach slash GM role for Milwaukee? Why would you do that? <laughs> like, respectfully, I really well, like Jeff Van Gundy. I don't complain about him nearly as much as everybody else does. But like, there's no track record of coaches and GMs succeeding over the last 10 years. It just hasn't really worked anywhere outside of San Antonio where even pop still has RC Buford there. And then we don't have any idea whether Jeff Van Gundy can coach in today's league. Well, I think the reason why you would do it is number one, their ownership group are these New York guys, right? Yeah. Like they think big and they're looking for a splash and there's been all this, you know, conversation, 
you know, both, you know, behind the scenes and bubbling up above the scenes that the ownership, you know, disagreements are pretty messy, right? So their current GM is younger than us, Andrew. I mean, basically, and their current coach is Joe Prunty, who's not going to be their coach next season. We can agree about that, right? So they have holes potentially in both those spots. Uh, You know, give credit to their their GM, you know, John Horace. I mean, he swung uh, for it pretty hard in terms of the the Bledsoe trade this year. I mean, he's tried some different things, but they have some huge decisions coming up. Well, and a lot of what's wrong with their roster isn't necessarily Horst's fault. Of course not. Of course not. I mean, he's he took over last summer, right? Mm-hmm. But you could see why an ownership group, they've got a new building in Milwaukee. They've got the pressure to keep Giannis. Like you could see them talking themselves into it, sort of like the Pistons did with Stan Van Gundy and like, oh yeah, this guy's got a great reputation. He's well-known. He's famous. He's been on TV. Okay, let's throw him out there, give him the keys and see what he can do for a few years. Uh, I imagine that, you know, Jeff Van Gundy would do very well in an interview setting, don't you think? I mean, say what you will about the idea behind hiring him, uh-huh. but I bet you he interviews pretty well because he can, you know, name drop and tell stories for days. Uh, he has a very clear <laughs> that's philosophy a, that's on a good point. Yeah, and definitely like sitting with those hedge fund billionaires in Milwaukee, they're going to feel extra cool just like bullshitting back and forth with Jeff Van Gundy. Yeah, and it's similar to why probably they hired Jason Kidd, right? Yeah. Name recognition, wattage, right? So, I mean, I, I'm just throwing that out there. But if that happened, I wouldn't be shocked if that happened. Um, and if you're Milwaukee, like, let's be honest, what are their reasonable alternatives, right? Like, if you're a coach, aren't you a little bit worried by that job? It's an awful lot of pressure to take Giannis from point A to point B. Uh, inexperienced front office. Uh, lots of roster questions. Is Jabari still going to be there? Yeah. The fit issues that you've said, not a ton of talent on hand. I think it appeals to a certain type of coach, uh, is, you know, someone who's confident in their own uh, skin, but also would have a large enough contract so they know there would be there for a few years, no matter what, right? Like if I'm an assistant coach, I'm not rushing to take the Bucks job because I figure I'm going to get blamed if they don't win a playoff series next season. I'm going to get fired real quick. Yeah, it's a strange thing because, I mean, I heard on Zach Lowe's pod uh, last week, I think he was talking to Howard Beck and saying that the Bucks job is going to be the most sought after coaching job in the league this summer. And I understand that, but I, I would share the concerns from you. Like, I, I mean... Giannis's future is uncertain. The rest of the roster is a little bit shakier than people realize. The ownership group is in flux. The management hasn't been great. I mean, I don't know. I definitely understand the upside, but I would be I would be cautious. Although, if the alternative is going to New York to coach the Knicks, I mean, the Bucks sound pretty great. Yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> whenever we're talking about the most attractive <laughs> jobs that are available. I mean, they're not that attractive because somebody just got fired for losing in that job, yeah. right? So, you know, M- Milwaukee in this situation, like I've said, I mean, there's there's definite questions. But you, one thing you know for sure, if you're a coach's agent or you're a coach, uh-huh. their owners have money, you know? That's why it's attractive. Like, those guys are rich. Like, you could get a big bag for that's those true. guys if you play your cards right. And that's why they're going to be pretty high on the list. Yeah, well, um, moving on here, Adam asked us about Jay Wright to the Bucks as a possibility. He said, I don't think Jay is going to leave for another year. What about Jay Wright as Brett Brown's replacement after a disappointing playoff elimination next year? If LeBron is gone and they don't progress, maybe Jay Wright is the answer for Philly. Um, I would just say, if I were Jay Wright, I would never want to leave the like fiefdom he's created in Philly. Uh, like The idea of big-time college coaches leaving 
that world behind for uh, for the NBA has never made that much sense to me. And I don't think it's a slam dunk that he would succeed in the NBA. So, um, hope- yeah. How do you how do you think Billy Donovan looks at his jump? Right, like he's the he's the case study totally. for Jay Wright leaving Villanova. Right, I mean is Billy Donovan's life better or worse than if he had just stayed in the college ranks? I mean, I think you could probably make a strong argument. He's enjoyed the challenge. He's been able to compete on the highest level. They had a really deep playoff run that one year, but you know, Russell still pulls up from 35 with six <laughs> seconds left in the close games. Yeah. And like, you know, you don't have any say over that. Like it's pretty you know, there's, tough. There's pros and cons there. I think it would be really interesting to have like a candid interview with Billy Donovan 10 years from now when everything, when he's finished in Oklahoma city and he can really be honest about all of it. Uh, but for right now, I, I don't think you're going to get a straight answer. Um, but, uh, but yes, it, Billy Donovan is the first name I think about when I'm like a little bit skeptical of how great Jay Wright would really be and whether it would be worth it to him. Um, but couple more questions at the very end here, mini podium Ross asks, who is your favorite NBA commentator? Mine is Hubie Brown by a large margin. And at 90 plus years old, it still is. I started watching in 1990 and from the very first Hubie game I watched, I learned more each time. What if, What about you guys? Uh, do you have any nominations here? Um, well, the one thing I agreed with uh, in terms of Kevin Durant in his like two hours of drunken ramblings, <laughs> other than the fact that people need to watch full basketball games, was you know he gave Doris Burke a shout out. I think Doris is phenomenal. Uh, so she's way near the top of my list. Another guy I like a lot, and I wish he would get used better by the, their staff, is Brent Barry. Like, I think he's really player-only broadcast, no question. And they put him into like this pseudo play-by-play role. No, like Brent is a smart color commentator. Just use him as a color commentator with a traditional play-by-play guy. Get him on one of the major crews. He's not flashy. He doesn't have corny sayings. Uh, you know, sometimes his humor is a little bit subtle. The guy is really, really good, and I like Van Gundy too, actually. Um, you know, he sometimes turns game broadcasts into podcasts, which isn't great. You know, like he'll just get sidetracked. Uh, but he takes his fair share of shots at various institutions. He was going after the NCAA last week. Yeah, uh, he's entertaining. He's the one guy who I think actually can make me, you know, chuckle out loud or laugh out loud when I'm watching a game. And um, you know, so from that standpoint, you know, that's kind of my short list, my big three. Yeah, I like all the names you mentioned. I don't know. I, I It's hard for me because I don't really care about commentators as much. I really like Doris Burke, um, and I like whenever she's on podcasts. Uh, Van Gundy. My dream is to one day have the Van Gundy brothers calling games together. Um, and maybe that's not Stan Van Gundy's dream, but it looks like he's headed that direction. Uh, the one name I would add is um, Kevin Harlan. Basically, like all of the announcers I really like are guys I've been listening to for 20 years so that their voice just reminds me of basketball and like memories through the years. And Harlan is definitely in that category. I'm not really, I I don't really care that much about actual analysis from commentators because Twitter is usually kind of like another level um, when I'm looking for that. But, uh, but yeah, I'm just looking for like that comfort of, of a familiar voice. And so Harlan, Hubie, Van Gundy lately, uh, they're all in that category. Well, let me guess. Let me guess. Marv Albert's on your list too, then, for the same reason, right? He is. Although, if, if forced to choose between Marv Albert and Harlan, I am uh, Team Kevin Harlan, I think. Wow. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's controversial. Now, I think for the nostalgia factor, Marv Albert, 
uh, is kind of, you know, in that category. I mean, so many of Jordan's highlights were, you know, voiced by him. Uh, I would also say, though, for like a regular just league pass night, you know, like not a national TV game, not a big deal. I'm just like, you know, bouncing around. I'm almost all podcasts now when I watch games. I'm just muting the game. I'm just listening to podcasts. Have you made that transition yet or no? Uh, Sometimes for sure. And then the only other thing I would add is I I don't notice the announcers that much, um, but I watched OKC versus Denver um, last weekend. And not to single anyone out, but like, the Thunder announcers are really brutal with their homerisms. And, uh, and that could get pretty pretty tough to deal with so i don't notice anyone unless they are like actively bad yeah there's virtually no local broadcast that i'll watch at this point and i wonder if this is like kind of a discussion point like for media companies right yeah because those guys are usually pretty highly paid they're among the highest paid non-player employees in organizations or you know the local networks and I would love to see stats on muting, like the percentage of <laughs> muting that's happened in the last five years, because I'll, I'll tell you, you know, three years ago, if we had this conversation, I definitely still listened with the sound on to 95% of the games. I, that doesn't even mean I was listening carefully, but at least it was on. Yeah, I would say probably 20% of the games now where I actually have the sound on. Uh, and that includes like, you know, if there's a review or whatever, and there's some debate going on, I'll put that on just to see what's happening. But um, you know, 80% plus time right now I'm listening to podcasts. It's just a faster way to get information. And how much, you know, of the actual commentary going on in a game is ever going to stick with you? I mean, to me, it's like completely disposable, right? Like the average, you know, color commentator has a really tough job because they have no idea what to prepare for in terms of what's going to happen on the court. Right. It's all happening in real time. And then it's done, you know, it's flushed uh, the next day. And so, I don't know. I, I just think, you know, podcast is uh, a better thing for your ears if you're sitting and staring at a screen for, you know, three to six hours straight. I, I have trouble following podcasts when I'm watching TV. I like to save pods for like household chores or when I'm cooking dinner. So like basically when I'm doing dishes or cooking dinner, I'm listening to podcasts, but I, I generally lose track of the conversation if I'm watching a basketball game. Um, but uh, no, there's no question. Like you can't dig in deep to like the Mueller investigation like, during the third quarter of a <laughs> yeah, Bucks game. Like, you got to like strategically choose which podcast you're listening to. There's no doubt. All right. Last question from Allison who asks, would you rather be tucked in by Adam Silver every night or watch your favorite player date a Kardashian? What do you think? Well, can I ask you a question? Allison sent in like 14 or 15 questions in a huge (laughs) burst over the weekend. So I want to say, first of all, thank you, Allison. But I want to ask you a question. How did you pick this of all of her questions? What what was it about this one that rose above the rest? Um, It was nice and simple. And I think it's an an interesting choice. Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll give you my answer. I think that my favorite player right now is probably Bradley Beal or John Wall, and the stakes are still low enough for them that like dating a Kardashian is not going to swing a potential title race. So I'm not willing to sacrifice being tucked in to bed by Adam Silver every night just for the sake of like the Wizards making the second round instead of the first round. But I think it does become a little bit more complicated if it was like, Steph Curry potentially dating a Kardashian or or not. What is the downside of being tucked in by Adam Silver? It's just it's awkward or something? Yeah, or, I mean, that's pretty that uncomfortable. <laughs> and, and we should add the Kardashian jokes are kind of lame. However, the uh, like as someone who watched Rashad McCants 
date Chloe. There have been a, a significant number of careers who have sort of been altered by Kardashian flings. Look, first of all, it would be awkward and uncomfortable the first couple of times, but I think after maybe three or four times of being tucked in, it would actually be pretty comfortable. Like, you know, it, it's just a hassle for him. He's coming in. He's just going to tuck you in quickly. He's going to leave as, as quickly as possible. And you know, being tucked into bed, who's going to complain about that? Like, that's, you know, that's a maid service. That's great. Yeah. Like, you know, it's just solving your life. I To me, that seems much lower risk. And then the other possible benefit is you could, you know, surprise Adam Silver every once in a while. He's coming in to tuck you in and you could just unload on him about tanking and just be like, come on, man, your league's an embarrassment. You got to stop lying. And, you know, because of the terms of this agreement, he would still have to tuck you in as you're sort of ranting and raving, right? So I think having a night, uh, a nightly conversation or interaction with Adam Silver where you can sort of force feed him your ideas about the game would be an overwhelming benefit and I just don't see any overwhelming benefit with having, you know, a specific player dating a Kardashian. I mean, that seems like there's no ceiling to that scenario. All right. Well, there you go. Bedtime stories with Adam Silver for Ben Golliver. Uh, I like it. I mean, look, it's going to require some explanation. Like, why is this guy in our room? <laughs> it's going to be a topic you have to discuss. But I think, you know, ultimately, if you think it through and you and you maneuver with it, it could be okay. Yeah, sure. Um, okay. Well, on that note, Let's come back Friday. Uh, I look forward to catching up. Uh, this is a big week. There's a lot of a lot of seating is at stake around the league. And uh, yeah, man, it's been fun. It's been very fun. Congratulations for getting your MVP pick right this year. And I, <laughs> I don't know if I stress that enough. I want to give you positive reinforcement. You know, just you know, falling down once. As long as you get up and, and try again, that's, that's all that what matters. I Andrew. really appreciate. And I really it. appreciate you. I'm just, I'm just striving yeah, for welcome. your approval. That's what, I, that's what I'm all about these days. There's no question, and you know, that's good. That's that's a healthy, positive <laughs> dynamic. I'm not going to come tuck you into bed, but you know, I am proud of you. Anyway, on that note, all listeners, please go to Apple Podcasts. We're getting ramped up for the playoff season here quickly. We'd love your five star uh, ratings. We're very and close reviews. to a thousand these days. We're very close to 14,600 these days. It's been great. Open Floor Globes come to our rescue. Just search uh, our name, Open Floor, on Apple Podcasts. Scroll down. It'll say rate and review. Tap five stars. It's just that easy. It's as quick as rating like an Uber driver or a Postmates delivery person. Uh, Andrew, until next week, I will talk to you. All right, man. Take it easy. Another great edition of Open Floor is in the books. Did you know Locked On has a daily podcast for all 30 NBA teams? If you're a Lakers fan, search Locked On Lakers. A Celtics fan, search Locked On Celtics. Warriors fans, search Locked On Warriors. Yes, all 30 NBA teams have a daily bite-sized podcast on the Locked On Podcast Network. Search on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts for Locked On, your favorite team. Or tell your smart speaker to play podcasts, Locked On, your favorite team. It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.